Welcome to the Filmlinks Podcast, a door-to-door podcast where we analyze all that goes into effective filmmaking. I'm Jonathan. And I'm Alex. And this is episode 128, Long Live Lubitsch. Long live Lubitsch. Long live uh, myself. <laughs> and we say that because um, I am thinking that a lot of people listening to this may be thinking to themselves, who is Lubitsch? What is that, Lubitsch? That's fair. That's fair. Who is Lubitsch? Um, it, it, it's, it might be weird to hear that he's one of the most influential filmmakers of all time. Uh, because he's not. He's not been heralded like some of the other directors who uh, were, frankly, more influenced by him than anything else. Uh, among them being, you know, a lot of the the German directors that came after him, um, but also Alfred Hitchcock uh, and Billy Wilder. Oh, I have a list here. Yeah, Billy William Wilder. Wilder. Um, I mean, they were the ones with the pithy dialogue after his uh, his death. Um, where I can't, I can't get their name straight on a normal day. I don't remember who said so which terrible. one was which on a regular day. Also, they were always hanging out together, which is just not fair. Yeah. Um, but, but one after his funeral, cause he died prematurely in his fifties of mm-hmm. a heart attack. Um, he, uh, one of them, uh, either Wilder or Weiler said, uh, this means no more Lubitsch. And the other one said worse. This means no more Lubitsch pictures. Um, yep. So yeah, he's he's Here's very my list here. Also, Orson Welles, Jean Renoir, uh, oh, yep. Max yep. Ophlis, um, Howard Hawks, and Press All Sister. Those... Just like tons of huge names. Otto Preminger. Otto Preminger was actually yep. the uh, he was the guy who finished uh, last Lubitsch's film. last film uh, after because he died after production had finished, but before post had wrapped, I believe. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I mean, he's also well known. He's uh, one of these guys that plans out his movies to like the nth degree, he has his Lubitsch blueprints, which I don't think he called them that, but other people called them that. Um, so he was one of those guys, kind of like Hitchcock, yeah. uh, who he kind of ran in, in a contemporary time frame with, uh, who almost had everything in the movie done and ready to go by the time he got to set. And then it was just a matter of execution. Yep. And that precision really shows. Uh, but before we talk about... Um, some of his films and why so many of these directors were influenced by him. Let's take a look into his history. Uh, So he was born in 1892 in Berlin uh, to Jewish parents. Uh, His father had immigrated to Germany from Russia due to anti-Semitism in Russia, uh, where, and then after he moved to Germany, he met Ernst's mother, uh, who I think was native to Berlin. Um, And so growing up, he had, I think he was the seventh child or something like that. Like there was a big family, but he was born several years kind of after his other siblings. And so he always kind of felt a little out of place uh, in the family. Um, And so that kind of spurred him to pursue his own type of interests and stuff like that, uh, which included things like music and uh, theater, which his father was not very uh, approving of. He really wanted him to just kind of like take a normal job, join him in the tailor shop, do stuff like that. Um, and But Ernst would continue to do his uh, theater and acting, and he joined uh, Max Reinhardt's uh, Dutch's Theater in 1911. Uh, and Reinhardt was a huge name in the German theater world, uh, and he would start to dabble in film a little bit, um, ne- never becoming like a big film director, but he was one of Ernst's uh, major... Um, and early mentors in just his appreciation. I feel like I've heard of Reinhardt before in other 
other famous director's backstories. Yeah, yeah, but I, I don't think he has any films to his name that are like big or widely known, but I think he was just really influential in his approach to theater and his approach to the arts and stuff like that and really giving Ernst an uh, appreciation for and, that. And being a, uh, a uh, uh, Overwatch character. <laughs> okay, there's that too. Um, so Lubitsch uh, did a lot of acting. He was kind of a, a, a comedic actor, um, but really he was not, he didn't have the acting talent uh, in the way that some of the other major players uh, around him did. And he realized that his talents were more suited towards directing and he had much more sensibility uh, in that respect. Um, there was also like a little bit of a self-consciousness to him, I think, about kind of his physical appearance. Um, there's there's actually a story where Ernst's father took him in front of a mirror and said, look at that face. Do you think this is the face of an actor? No, this is the face of a tailor. You need to join. <laughs> you can make money in the tailor shop. And so there's kind of that that I think almost follows him into some of the way that uh, we're going to see him uh, depicting male characters and their their self identities and, and stuff like that. Uh, but after he started making films, he kind of took off. He made a lot of um, silent films in Germany, and he started to make bigger and bigger films uh, until he was making historical epics, like on the scale of uh, D.W. Griffith uh, and those other directors who are known for those types of films. Um, some of those films are Madame du Dubarry in 1919, Anna Boleyn mm -hmm. in 1920. Uh, I think Anna Boleyn was actually the first film that was released outside of Germany to the U.S., um, dropping that ban after the First World War um, when no German films were allowed into America. And it got a huge recognition in America and started getting him attention. So after Ernst realized how much more resources and opportunity there were for filmmakers in America that uh, Germany didn't have at the time because their economy was crashing in the post-war uh, era, so he moved to Germany. One of the few uh, German directors who would come to prominence in the next couple decades who left kind of voluntarily out of Germany and not actually fleeing the, um, uh, the anti-Semitism that was starting to crop up there. Uh, but he was actually hired by Mary Pickford in 1922 to direct a film called Rosita, and she'd starred in it. But Mary Pickford also had a tendency to basically direct herself in her own films and start kind of taking over. So they did not get along very well. She uh, was and, the queen. <laughs> yeah, we, we've talked about her before, uh, so you can go check out that podcast. But they never actually collaborated, but they did kind of, um, uh, or she never appeared in any more of, of Ernst's films. But they, they kind of, I think, resolved their difference eventually. Um, and he helped her uh, edit Sparrows, uh, one of her later films. Um, so after he moved to America, he's kind of turned from his historical epics into directing more kind of, uh, intimate social, um, uh, social comedies and stuff like that. Uh, so there, and this is where he starts to develop his style for, um, subtlety and, uh, just building really complex relationships between people. Uh, and so some of these films that are very influential are The Marriage Circle, uh, which a lot of directors quote this as as a film that kind of changed the game and opened their eyes to the ways that 
you could make films and kind of imply things and show things and just really, really uh, nuanced use of his craft. Um, he also directed a version of Lady Windermere's Fan, which is a, uh, a Oscar Wilde play. And it, he's kind of... So much of, to do with a fan. <laughs> it's kind of infamous, actually, for creating a silent version of an Oscar Wilde play, which Wilde is obviously known for his uh, quippy dialogue and his witticisms and stuff like that. And even through all the inner titles, he never once uses any of the uh, Oscar Wilde epigraphs uh, from the play that are very well known. Uh, so that's kind of like his little defiance, uh, his little like making the film his own and not just writing on uh, the uh, popularity of Oscar Wilde. And then when sound came along, he started to make uh, musical comedies. He's almost basically credited as creating the musical comedy genre, even though he didn't make the first musical, which I think we've talked about before is the jazz singer. Um, but even in his silent films, he was creating these musical sequences that were basically musicals in silent films that would have to be accompanied by the orchestra and stuff like that. But there's a very famous sequence in the Oyster Princess uh, called the Foxtrot Epidemic, where oh my a band gosh, yeah, with the, yeah, it just <laughs> kind of spreads throughout the entire Foxtrot. like mansion. And yeah, this all the servants, all the guests at this party, everyone starts dancing and going crazy, uh, except for the one guy who's getting married under a false name. Uh, yeah, and he like kind of he's like his buddies wife. going to get married. Yeah, yeah. So that sequence though is so well edited and has so much uh, vitality to it that it basically is credited as creating musicals before musicals were even possible with sync sound and that kind of thing. Um, so there's actually a quote from, I can't remember who the quote is by, but uh, it was regarding Ernst when he moved to Hollywood uh, and moved to America. And they were like, American film was doing great. We were doing really good. Uh, and then Ernst came in and he brought us all back to kinder kindergarten. We all had to start over <laughs> and learn from the master um, because he had already been doing so much stuff, even in, uh, even in the silent world. So in 1935, he became the first Hollywood director to run a large studio when he became the production manager of Paramount. Uh, and then he continued to make films in sound, uh, not all musicals, but he would do uh, the films that we're going to talk about today, which are very intimate um, social comedies and... Uh, whole sound. Uh, com yeah, whole sound. Comedy of manners, kind of like what we... It's going to have a lot of like these really subtle social um, commentaries and, and, but also with like a really tongue in cheek nature to everything. Uh, and he starts to develop what becomes the Lubitsch touch, which is accredited to him by others, but it's basically his, his ability to create films with really, Oh gosh, with, with a sensuality kind of built into them. And with these, these uh, relationships between people that have these sexual undertones that normally would not be able to get past the censors, but he had a way of doing them in a way that uh, kind of got around anything that anyone could pin on him explicitly. There's a quote from one of the Hollywood censors that <laughs> where he's like, I know what Lubish is saying here, but I just, I don't know how he's saying it. And so they could never really pin him. And so he's able to get away with a lot of things that other directors weren't. Uh, in a way that made a lot of 
people really admire the storytelling he was able to do even as the Hayes Code came into effect in the late 30s. And although he was nominated three times for Best Director, he only ever received an honorary Oscar at the end of towards the end of his life for a distinguished contribution to uh, the motion picture industry. And in 1947, uh, as Alex mentioned, he passed away at the age of 55, which was way too soon. That is the guy that we're talking about today. But Alex, what are the films of his that we will be specifically covering? All right, we're going to be talking about four. Uh, the first up uh, is Ninochka from 1939, co-written with uh, Billy Wilder. Um, nominated for Best Picture, Best Actress, Best Original Story, and Best Screenplay. Uh, followed up by The Shop Around the Corner from 1940, starring uh, Jimmy Stewart. Uh, so good. Which so good. Does it, it, I don't think it has any nominations, right? Uh, no, not at the Oscars anyway. Uh, but it, it does. Some minor wins. It, does feature uh, Margaret Sullivan, um, who has quite the history with both Jimmy Stewart and Jimmy Stewart's best friend, Henry Fonda, which we'll talk about, which I feel like influences Jimmy Stewart's performance in the film. Um, and then uh, To Be or Not to Be, 1942, um, which is does involve Hamlet, um, <laughs> but it, it, As it was it. nominated for Best Score. And then finally, Heaven Can Wait from 1943, uh, which is not which was nominated for best picture best director uh, best director and best cinematography in color um which i think is the only color film uh, that, that we're going to be talking about from uh, lubich uh and with that let's hop into the individual breakdown starting with ninochka from 1939. ninochka from 1939 Three Soviet agents arrive in Paris to arrange for the sale of royal jewels confiscated from the previous czarist regime. After bungling the operation badly and dealing with Count Leon d'Algu, their superior, Ninochka arrives to sort out the situation. Unknowingly, she falls into the orbit of Count Leon d'Algu, who in turn falls for her before realizing they are competitors in the Romanov jewel affair. What follows is a border and ideology-crossing love affair for the Lubitsch age. All right, so this movie stars uh, uh, Melvin Douglas, who, if you were in the... Uh, he was in one of the movies we watched for the film club this month, I believe. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he, he was, was in uh, That Uncertain Feeling, that which uncertain is actually feeling. a remake of one of Lubitsch's silent films that is lost. Apparently, the silent film was great because uh, there's a lot of like reviews and stuff that we still have about it that say it was one of his like really great silent films, but no one can watch it anymore. Uh, uh, so yeah, but that uncertain feeling was, was quite a fun ride. Did you also realize Jonathan that Bella Lugosi is in this movie? I did not. Where does, where's Bella Lugosi in this movie? He is Commissar Razinin. Is he one of the three stooges? No, uh, no, 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 no. Yeah, uh, oh. I, I can't remember which one's the commissar. I think he appears very early in the film, and that's like it. Okay. Interesting. No, I didn't even notice that. That's awesome. Um, but yes, I, I really, really enjoy this movie. It's really, uh, really fun. Greta Garbo's performance is amazing. Um, it It almost comes across as like this condemnation of communism, but I don't think that's really it. Um, cause it, it was banned in Russia, 
but well, that's not everyone surprising. else loved it. <laughs> that's not surprising at all. It kind of uses like this East versus West. Uh, it sets up two ideological framework, but yeah. it, it really ex- it what it, I think what it's driving at is that elements of humanity exist regardless of what. Are there certain elements of humanity that exist regardless of what kind of like ideal you claim to hold up? Um, like there's things that make us fundamentally human that cross like uh, borders or political uh, or ideological or economic identity um, or ideology. Um, mm-hmm. And it gets down to stuff that's really, really personal, um, which is which is really neat. Now, do I... I, f- I find uh, the seduction really weird on both sides, but it's kind of like that awkward uh, sort of humor that almost makes the whole thing work. Yeah, yeah. And it's it's a thing that Lubitsch deals with a lot. Um, and uh, we're going to talk about kind of the ways that it that it does and doesn't work. Um, you know, he, he is kind of breaking down a certain type of morality um, from the time that he's he's making the films in. And so there, there's also this element to um, almost kind of all these films, maybe not so much Heaven Can Wait, but there there is an element where when Lubitsch came to America, he had kind of told the studios that he was going to uh, make films uh, about America and the American ideals and that kind of thing. But almost all of them are set in Europe uh, and he kind of uses Europe, um, and in this film specifically France, as a way to comment on American society and stuff like that. Uh, but he can kind of use France as like an excuse, like, oh, well, the French are are much more free and liberal in their relationships and that kind of thing. Uh, but really, he's playing for an American audience. Um, and so we have, uh, like, I mean, the main relational tug of war that's going on here is uh, Leon, played by Melvin Douglas, who is involved with this countess uh, as just her liaison, we'll say. And uh, then he ends up falling in love with uh, Ninochka and has to, you know, almost have this taming of a shrew kind of a story with her and kind of breaking her out of her really rigid... um, framework of you know why things need to be done things are basically only utilitarian uh whether it's relational or political or whatever um and you know he has to thaw the ice and get her to to live life and do that all that kind of stuff um and so it's it's really interesting the way that he takes these two like politics are always kind of a way for Lubitsch to just talk about fundamentally human things. Um, and he's kind of criticized for that sometimes in that he never really depicts history or politics as being what dictates people's um, relationships and stuff like that. But he more often will show how the relationships and inclinations of the rulers more often dictate the poli- the politics and the policies than the other way around, uh, which is an interesting take that's not usually the bent of highly political films, which on the surface, Ninochka is, but that's really not the point. Yeah, yeah, no. So it's actually something really neat that um, Lubitsch does does with Europe. Uh, And I feel like he's really, both like in terms of 
like the bi- biography that we traced over at the top of this podcast and the Europe that he likes to use as his playground in so many of his films. Um, I feel like he's such an example of the first half of the 20th century in a lot of ways, especially the interwar years, the interwar decades uh, between uh, 1918 and 1939, 1940 um, into this world of Europe that at, all at once is both kind of like cosmopolitan and in some ways kind of like, you know, liberal and free and almost utopian, but in other ways, like there's these dark undercurrents of growing uh, ideologies like Nazism in the background. Um, And everyone always speaks English wherever you go. (laughs) Yeah. Language is not a barrier in any of these films. Yeah. And some people have accents and some people don't like the, uh, like some people in the it, like when we get to the shop around the corner, like half of the cast has an accent and yeah. half of the cast does not. Um, it's almost like, like it's all spaghetti western. Cosmo- Everyone yeah. speaks in their own voice. It's all very very cosmopolitan, which is very interesting. Yeah. Um, but I also I kind of he's such a he he likes to play in this very very fantasy world. Like he doesn't go full on like he's not Lord of the Rings style fantasy. But decidedly, <laughs> the reality that uh, or, or the world depicted in um, Ernst Lubitsch's films can in no way be uh, ascertained as the real world. And sometimes that's really, really, really um, obvious, like when we get to Heaven Can Wait. Yeah. Um, and or some like, of his silent films like The Wild Cat, elements. which is almost yep. susical. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and sometimes it's not as obvious. Uh like Ninochka or To Be or Not To Be, which uses real uh, geopolitical situations as backdrops. Mm-hmm. Um, but even then, like, decidedly, it's not a real version. Like, that's not a real version of Warsaw after it was attacked by Germany in To Be or Not To Be. Very obviously yeah. not. Um, and, and so I understand why, you know, some people might criticize him for. Uh, not delving so seriously into these uh, geopolitical influences on people's uh, uh, on people's personalities, um, and I, I do think that exists for some of the characters in some of his, these films, where their uh, personalities are driven by these politics, like Ninochka, very directly here. But the mm-hmm. more interesting thing is is, and the more human thing, honestly, which makes it the more interesting thing, is not how. Uh, geopolitics or world situations or worldviews influences uh someone's personality but how their personality mixes back with um the world around them and how they as individuals express themselves within the systems that they are bound to so ninochka expresses herself differently uh after her she expands her her worldview and changes and doesn't just absorb um uh you know, Soviet culture. And actually the same thing happens to uh, Melvin Douglas's character, whose name I don't remember um, because it's not the title of the movie. And why would I remember any name that isn't the title of a movie? Um, His worldview changes. Yeah. Over the course of the film, he becomes more, uh, he starts to understand like the, the uh, utopian ideals at the root of a lot of communist uh, ideology um, over the course of the film as well. And he starts to grow too. Um, and at the end they kind of yeah. reach like this weird compromise that isn't super duper clear to me. Um, but 
it it has the big happy music and big happy faces. So <laughs> I feel like it ended yeah. good. So there's there's an interesting thing. I've been reading a um a biography about Lubitsch by Joseph McBride called How Did Lubitsch Do It? Um because uh, he takes the title of his book from a quote that Billy Wilder had in his office, maybe even on his office door, uh, that just said, how would Lubitsch do it? As kind of like his philosophy of approaching film. Um, and But in, in the book, he talks about how there is a sort of nostalgic look at, um, uh, as you're saying, interwar Europe, and in a way that's that's not completely realistic, but also in a way that probably people who were living through it were feeling about it, like, you know, almost almost more of a, a wishful version of Europe at that time. And he also says that any other films that uh, or depictions of Europe in this kind of idealized way probably come after about 1914 when Ernst Lubitsch started directing. Like, he was kind of the one who took on this this look at Europe as, as kind of like a, not to say that there's no darkness or, or uh, bad political backdrop to any of this, but it, there's also kind of like shop around the corner is almost more like a, like an ideal um, Capra E setting, even though technically yes, people are out of work and there's some of that stakes there, but the story itself feels much lighter than some of those settings that are, probably more real than they're being depicted. Yeah, no, that's fair. Um, gosh, he also just has, and, and we, we should start talking about this too, because this is part of the Lubitsch touch. He has like this perfect sense of timing when it comes to comedy. Um, oh, yeah. That is all based around the idea of these completely absurd characters um, interacting. Um, which which works out really well based on the idea that he is such a blueprint designer when it, it comes to being a filmmaker. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it also comes from theater to some extent. Yeah, yeah. I mean, one, a great example is, and one of my favorite uh, sequences in the whole Ninochka film, is uh, the series of scenes that happen in Ninochka's uh, shared uh, apartment in Russia. Uh, especially <laughs> the royal suite? The the oh uh the the part where uh, oh in Russia yeah 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 so we have her friend coming in there's the concern about her laundry because she happened to wear one of one undergarment back home from uh, Paris and so she still A has it yeah um and uh, there's that guy who still has to come through the room but he's probably going <laughs> to Every- report you if he hears something he, he's so they're, probably going to always report clam you, up but also maybe like and that's that's what they think. Um, of course, but also uh, maybe he's just feeling really awkward because he has to pass through their room every time he has to go to the bathroom. Yeah, um, I think there was a line where like they know that he's he's going to report someone. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, he also has to just bring his kid through at one point to just like gargle. Just go to the bathroom. Uh, yeah, yeah. That's actually a pretty good example. It, there's just, just completely based on timing and silent space. Uh, Guy moves through room while all the characters stop what they're doing and watch. Uh, enters the bathroom with his kid, and they all listen as the kid gargles, <laughs> and then goes back across the room. Um, and because it's already been established, it's or it's already funny to everyone else. It's also just unexpected and absurd. Um, the whole uh, the dialogue surrounding the eggs and the eggs that the one egg that happens to be broken is all perfect, oh, uh, like spot guy. on. 
a perfect spot on like theatrical style timed comedy mm-hmm. um, that's both visual and dialogue based, which is perfect for a 1930s movie, um, almost in the slapstick genre, but less um, wacky um, and so more I'll just fast paced. Along those lines, um, what are your thoughts about basically the uh, fulcral point of the film uh, where Garbo laughs, which is basically literally a marketing uh, bit for the film uh, because this is kind of a turn for Greta Garbo in terms of coming off of doing a lot of like really melodramatic kind of tragic roles into doing or at least trying to do some more lighthearted and comical things. Um, and so there is a moment where uh, Leon is trying to get Ninochka to laugh because she's so door about everything. Um, and he like tells her three or four jokes in a row. Uh, and then he sits in a chair and it breaks and falls over. And then she just bursts out laughing. Um, what did you, th- what it's are a good your cathartic moment. take on that whole scene? The, the timing on it is interesting though, because she's so stoic for so long. And then, well, the see, flip that's, that's is the, really abrupt. That's, that's the beautiful point. Um, one one key point, uh, one thing that can make something really funny is is abruptness and shock, mm-hmm. um, and I think what works so well about that point, I don't think it's, I think him falling in the chair is really funny. Uh, uh, obviously, the face he pulls is really good, and the fall is mm-hmm. really good. Uh, but I think the best part about that moment is how cathartic it is for the audience, uh, in the sense that as a filmmaker, uh, Lubitsch has essentially spent the first part of the movie kind of building up. Um, this question in our minds is it that Melvin Douglas's character is also trying to figure out is, is this woman really a robot or yeah. is she, or is she a real person, which is she I also, redeemable more or less? Yeah. Yeah. And I don't even know if that's like such a extension of like her as a communist. That seems to be Ninochka's as an individual character's interpretation of what a communist should be. Cause we meet other communists in the movies who in the movie who are not as robotic as she is. It seems well, to be the like other ones are mostly like our three stooges character. <laughs> yeah. We have our three stooges characters. We also have, Oh, that's who Be- Bella Lugosi is the commissar, the guy she reports to in, um, in Russia. Oh, okay. Yeah. 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 Uh, that, that would, that makes a lot of sense. Okay. Uh, but you know, our other characters who we meet are, uh, have like their own expressions of it. They, there's the three stooges who seem just put upon uh, by they they don't like being communist. They're just um, yeah they're scared that they're going to do something uncommunist rather than being like fully in the mindset. Yeah, and they, then they turn French pretty quickly. Yeah, uh, and then there's the commissar who is in there very briefly, but just seems to be an extension of uh, you know f- fulfilling his role as like a power. Uh, as a power center, a power, an officer, a member authority of figure. Commun- authority figure. There you go. Thank yeah. you. Uh, <laughs> but also, he doesn't seem to be as cog-like as um, right as Ninochka is, and even her friend doesn't seem as cog-like as Ninochka is. Her friend seemed way more human. It almost seems to me like some of the uh, roboticness that uh, Ninochka adopts when she goes to France seems to be like this wall that she puts up almost like she's afraid that she's going to be seduced by those evil capitalists, which is exactly what happens, which makes it funny. But anyway, to go back to the chair, 
uh, the thing that makes it cathartic is we've built up this question in the the audience's mind, right? We've we've made them wonder is who is this person really? You're waiting to see either her crack or see her be like un unbelievably cold or something like that, which we've already seen examples of. So there's that nice cathartic moment that puts us in the same shoes as Melvin Douglas, where she finally laughs. It's at something completely ridiculous, which is also funny. Yeah. Um, if she's tried so many things and that's what makes her laugh. Um, but it's also the, finally this moment of it's this answer. It's this moment of, Oh yes. Okay. She is human. And uh, what's more, it opens up, the plot to go to so many more places once that happens it gives oh, yeah. us uh it gives us a hook it's like okay no melvin douglas has a chance here nanosha um is a real human not not just a robot uh, you know let's let's see them act and you have a really good point uh they marketed it really well for an era where a star's persona was basically like one set or one type of roles just with like a different name uh, or a, and a different backdrop yeah. in every film to see her kind of switch around like that. You know, it, it was kind of like a perfect moment for that kind of turn. Yeah. All right. We've talked about Ninochka for a while. We should probably uh, move on to the shop. <laughs> yes. Okay. Uh, we should probably move on to the shop around the corner from 1940. All right, let's do it. Jason, set us up. The shop around the corner from 1940. Matushek and Company is a fine leather goods store in Budapest where all the employees have their share of problems. The owner, Matushek, is concerned that his wife might be having an affair. Kralik, the top salesman, is in love with a woman he's only met through correspondence. Errand boy Pepe feels overworked and underappreciated, and the whole rest of the shop is filled with unique and signaturely Lubitsch-esque characters. They are soon joined by Clara Novak, a new shop girl who butts heads with Kralik, but she too is in love with a secret corresponder who, unbeknownst to either of them, is Kralik himself. All right, Jonathan, there's a lot to talk about with uh, the shop around the corner from 1940. We have to talk about uh, the comparison with one of our movie club uh, films that we watched with our fans this month, You've yep. Got Mail. Uh, which we also which, have covered on the podcast. Which we also have covered on the podcast. Um, and we also have to talk about uh, Anna Karenina, which is a plot point in this one, and other um, other uh, Lubitsch movies, uh, which is seems interesting. seems appropriate for Lubitsch. It seems appropriate for Lubitsch uh, and the time he's in. Uh, but one thing that I want to uh, kick off with and put in a backdrop, because I didn't know this the first time I watched the movie, but uh, between the first my first watch of this movie and now, uh, when I've rewatched it for the show... Uh, I went and read a book I, called Stuart and Fonda, Jimmy and H- Hank, something like that, um, <laughs> about the, uh, I just can't remember names of anything, uh, but it's it's about the uh, friendship of Jimmy Stewart and Henry Fonda, um, who are best buddies for decades, um, from before they got to Hollywood, and they were uh, struggling actors in New York uh, on Broadway to being in Hollywood, being famous, and even into uh, their golden years. Uh, But one of the people they were friends with during that time period was Margaret Sullivan, and both of them, uh, Henry uh, Fonda and Jimmy Stewart, were desperately in love with her. Um, Okay. Just completely head over heels in love with her. um, Henry Fonda married her in 1930, 
um, and divorced her in 1933. And Jimmy Stewart was very much in love with uh, Margaret Sullivan, but never told her. Um, she apparently viewed him as kind of like uh, a younger brother type relationship. Ooh, um, ouch. But he was he was head over heels in love with her. And I think it might have been Lubitsch or one of the directors they worked with who literally said if Jimmy had just told her, she they probably would have gotten married. But apparently that never happened. Wow. Um, and Jimmy Stewart got married pretty late in life in like the his uh, 40s um, and then stayed married to the same woman his entire life uh, until his death. Uh, Margaret Sullivan would go on to marry a few other guys and have a pretty successful Hollywood career as well. Uh, but that unrequited love, I knowing about it the second time I watched this movie, I feel like I see a lot more in Jimmy Stewart's performance than I did That's the first interesting. time. All right, Alex, I have some trivia to throw in here that I think will also play into uh, Lubitsch's side of the direction in in regards to one of the subplots, but actually one of the like a major subplot, if that's a thing. But um, I'm not sure if you're aware. It's not actually not in the Wikipedia page, but um, Lubitsch's personal life had some, uh, not a lot of scandals, but one that was that was pretty important, especially in, rela- in relation to the types of films that he made, um, because uh, Lubitsch's first wife um, actually had an affair with his best friend and frequent co-writer, uh, uh, Hans Crawley, or I think that's his name. Um, <laughs> they had worked together for a long time. And then in 1930, uh, Lubitsch found out that they had been having an affair behind his back. And, uh, so then they got divorced and there were a couple instances where people tried to get Lubitsch and Crawley to kind of reconcile uh, there was actually a point where they met at a party and Lubitsch thought that they were making fun of him the whole time while he was dancing with uh, another girl that he was dating after the divorce. Um, and they exchanged blows and people had to pull them apart. And uh, so it was not a good relationship for... But Hollywood kind of sided with Lubitsch and Crawley didn't work a lot after that. Um, so sad on that end of it. I mean, the whole thing is sad. And also... but. Sh- his wife had kind of cited his tendency towards workaholism, his, you know, just complete devotion to his filmmaking that he would not think about anything else basically uh, as part of it. And that is a huge part of what goes into this film with the store manager whose wife leaves him for one of the, uh, one of the clerks because he spends too much time at the store. Uh, And so knowing that now, I feel like, there's a whole other layer to the subplot that kind of drives along in the shop around the corner. Yeah. Yeah. It actually also shows a bit in, um, uh, that uncertain feeling. Yeah, no, there's, there's a lot of Lubitsch's films that deal with, uh, infidelity and this kind of like, like backstabbing. That's always, it's always treated almost playfully and, and with kind of like a, a lot of people call it flippant, but there's a lot more depth to it than that. But there's there's what appears to be kind of a flippancy towards infidelity and uh, um, this kind of really laxed type of um, relational bond in a lot of these films. 
Uh, and it's really ironic in light of some of the uh, uh, some of the problems that Lubish had in his own personal life. Yeah, for sure. Um, it is. I really like the plotting in this. Uh, in, the contrast in this, between uh, that with the store manager and our main primary budding romance is really nice. The 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 whole way that this um, this shop's dynamics are woven together is really good. Like it's it's very clear that Jimmy Stewart is the lead and that his story is kind of like the A story. Mm-hmm. But also, it's very much an ensemble piece. Yeah. Which is really no cool. one is really well. There are a couple actually, unimportant characters, but most everyone me, has an impact. It reminds me a whole whole heck of a lot of um, the Office. <laughs> okay, I uh, can see that. Well, that's exactly the. It's a workplace family. That's yeah. that's what it is, yeah. um, and it's built around that family dynamic. And everyone has a story to tell, and everyone kind of fits together. Um, it's not as. Uh, it's a super easy way to set up a cast. Like, yeah, you know oh, instantly sure. who everyone is and what the dynamic between them is. It's it's also this nice concept of, oh, inside this shop around the corner, you know, there's this whole world of stuff going on that you might ha- not have any idea knowing uh, about when you go in to just buy a suitcase um, or a oh, Chichanya, uh, a cigarette box, um, <laughs> right. which is just such a terrible idea. Oh, my gosh. Um, but again, like the... Just the craziness of each of the characters, um, which is very signature Lubitsch, um, and the heart of each character. Um, like, each character's very human, even when they're super flawed or super annoying, like you want to punch them out. Like, uh, what's-his-face? Um, who gets punched out, basically. Who, who actually gets punched out um, after cheating. Uh, or, or, I guess he's not really cheating, but he is having what an affair else? with the boss's wife, which isn't nice. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, but he's he is like flaunting it. Like he will walk in and show off all the crap that it's. This is part yeah. of the the masterful tact of Lubitsch is that you will see in one scene the boss man uh, who also plays the wizard in the Wizard of Oz, which is always fun. So I'm just going to call him the wizard. Um, so the wizard gets a phone call from his wife and it, he's like, "Yeah, I'll, I'll send you some money. I just sent you some money. Why do you need more money?" Uh, okay, fine. Here, have here. I'll send you some more money. And then the clerk that she's having an affair with walks in with like a new fur coat and is like, "Hey, look at my new fur coat, or look at my diamond ring. My grandma got it for me." And you're just like, "Because you know what's going on." Yeah, no, for sure. Uh, even like the really subtle humor that just kind of like shows uh, how much Lubitsch comprehends like how humans work. Um, like the jokes at the start of the movie where uh, it's like, ah, why are we all trying to be the first ones at the store? Like, this is ridiculous. Yeah. Or like the um, I don't think anyone ever says like out loud that, oh, everyone is a yes man in this shop except for me. Uh, but it's just heavily implied. Or the uh, routine jokes where annoying guy, I think Vache might be his name. V- Vadas. Vadas. Um like purposefully misinterprets comments um, from people and everyone always gets upset whenever he does that. And then everyone, uh, you know, rounds to the, to his defense in a moment. Um, But I will say there's so much heart and humanity in this, in in this store and you do not have hardly any of that. And you've got mail. Um, Oh, okay. We're going there. 
Sorry, sorry. I, that that is one of the things because I watched them in such close succession this time. Yeah, uh, it just really stuck out to me uh, because you've got male just goes full rom com and then doesn't have like the same heart behind it as it- the shop around the corner. And yeah, sure, it has you know it has twirling. Don't forget the twirling, <laughs> <laughs> which is just kind of like an unexplored plot device that's like told instead yeah. of shown, really. Um, and it has uh, it has pe- other people at the store, but they don't have like the same uh, kind of. But they don't even work together. Like it's, to it's not like it's not like yeah. these two people that we're following are in close proximity. They have to like contrive ways for them to come together. Yeah, that's that's um, the that's the great part about the shop around the corner is it's two people who don't like each other in real life, but love each other. Uh, when they don't like their work personas, but they actually like the real versions of themselves. Their romantic uh, that they, ideologies. That, yeah, that they share through the letters, um, but they're forced to interact in such a way uh, that they never get to reveal who they really are until the end of the movie. And the um, saddest thing is that I feel like that is such a modern idea, like because online dating is just ubiquitous now, uh, and so there there is almost a lot more relevance for falling in love with quote unquote, the idea of someone based on uh-huh. your correspondence their online than there persona. ever has been before. But I feel like you've got mail shoots itself in the foot by undercutting so much of the rest of the complexity of you've got, uh, of gosh, of the shop around the corner. Um, and one of those things is that other side plot of the infidelity of the, the shopkeeper's wife and how much that devastates him. Um, and you've got male almost trivializes that entire aspect of the film by making every other character in the film like some kind of weird philanderer and laughing it off. Uh, and so there's no like ground for making that a dramatic plot point whatsoever. Yeah, yeah, no, it doesn't. It just doesn't, uh, especially when you watch it so close to the original, it doesn't hold up. Yeah. Um, it kind of it, it has its idea, moments. It has becomes... some fun, but it it. It does not hold up to the the levels of intricacy that are built into Shop Around the Corner. Yeah, it's a much simpler um, just rom com. Whereas, yeah. as, as you could, there are romantic comedy elements, like there's romantic comedy plot lines in the Shop Around the Corner, uh, but it's more of like an ensemble humanist comedy. Yeah. Um, and I do want to bring up uh, something that shows up a little bit in Shop Around the Corner. Um, I think there are better instances of it um, uh, in To Be and Not To Be and some of Lubitsch's other films. But there is an aspect of the Lubitsch touch, which is a use of doorways um, and specifically closed doors um, and using closed doors as basically a universal innuendo almost not in this film. The way that it manifests in the shop around the corner is with the um, suicide attempt of the shop manager after finding out about his wife. Um, and in that is is obviously a very much more dramatic use. But, for example, in um, uh, the film that we watched on our movie nights. Oh, gosh, I've already forgotten. Oh, that that uncertain feeling. They use closed doors a lot as um, uh, ways of insinuating things. There's, there's a whole bit where 
the husband who's trying to make his wife jealous so that she'll return to him pretends that he's got a girl in his bedroom and goes goes into the bedroom and closes the door and like tries to, you know, convince his wife that there's someone there who's not. And so that's a really blatant use. But this is an element of the Lubitsch touch that comes up again and again um, and is one of the ways that he would kind of put a wink and nod towards the censors um, in a way that we've kind of talked about before with like Capra uses um, uh, the walls of Jericho in It Happened One Night. And it's almost like that. Capra is a lot more kind of uh, innocent with it in the way that it plays out. But Lubitsch is a lot more kind of coy about the way he uses doors. Yeah, no, I mean, it's a it's you know what it reminds me of. It's very seems very um, theatrical. Yeah, yeah, that's true. You just go off stage and anything can happen off stage. Anything can happen off stage. Wink, wink. Um, and plus, there's so much to say about a, a, a door when it comes to scene screenwriting or playwright or uh, stage writing. Yeah, like it's it is the entry point. So it makes sense in a lot of ways. Um, All right. I know we need to kind of wrap this one up, but I do want to bring up the fact that this is something that I kind of struggle with and it doesn't really uh, you don't feel it as much in the shop around the corner. But this film has been remade at least twice, maybe more. Um, and I always find that the second half of the film gets really creepy depending on who is playing the lead role, because it, it inherently is once the uh, the lead guy's character finds out that they are the ones corresponding after the genius um, meeting at the at the diner he kind of has all the control from there on out. Like he can completely manipulate her because he's holding all the cards. And so it's really easy for that to come off as like really weird um, and manipulative. Uh, I think Jimmy Stewart, just like his persona helps to alleviate that because you just implicitly trust him. Tom Hanks does that also for the most part. Um, but he, he has a little bit more of like a really stern, like, you know, businessy persona that he puts forth at the beginning that puts a little bit of an edge on it. Um, yeah, I didn't think it worked quite as well in the, beginning. in the good old summertime, but it's just, it's like really, really dangerous ground that you're walking on towards the end of this film, depending on who's playing it. Yeah. It's, it's a, it's a hard role to pull off, right? Cause it can so easily be so creepy. Mm-hmm. Um, and in a lot of ways, it's really weird. Uh, I think the thing that works so well, when it's done right is uh, when you play into the idea that like, Oh, this guy has no idea what, what to do. Like, Ooh man, he really oops into this situation. Yeah. Um, and the, and, and the effort shown uh, by him to kind of do, try to do the right thing. Um, right. Moving forward, which is not, not easy to do in that situation, obviously, but it provides a lot of opportunity for writing interesting character choices and character development in the um, over the course of the second half of the movie. Yep. You want to talk about Anna Karenina? Oh yeah, Anna Karenina. It is a uh, it's a plot point in here. I just wanted to point that out because uh, it, we're about to see it be a plot point again in To Be or Not to Be. It is the book they use when they are uh, supposed to be meeting. Um, and it will be the book they use uh, for spy work uh, in To Be or Not To Be. Yep. 
Yep. Uh, and it is a story about uh, infidelity. So that plays into a lot of these uh, um, storylines yeah. that we've been talking about. Lots, so lots of infidelity in this, kind of uh, yeah. in this episode. Um, which is one of the things that people, you know, is, is part of Lubitsch's canon is kind of presenting infidelity in, like I said, again, Shop Around the Corner is kind of an exception, but a lot of times infidelity is presented almost as uh, a playful kind of a thing. Um, sometimes it's even praised uh, and in, in a weird way, but again, always in like a really underhanded way that would not offend the censors, which is a really tricky thing to do. Um, but in To Be or Not To Be, it takes on a much more comedic aspect. Let's get into To Be or Not To Be, shall we? To Be or Not To Be from 1942. A Warsaw theater troupe full of crazy characters such as ham actor Josef Tura, his starlet wife Maria Tura, spear-carrying Greensburg, and Hitler look-alike Bronski, along with Maria Tura's paramour, Polish bomber pilot Stanislav Sowinski, get wrapped up into a world of intrigue during World War II. They stumble upon a plot from a Nazi agent to use the addresses of Polish RAF pilots in Warsaw against the Allies. To stop them, the Turas, the bomber pilots, and the cast embark on a series of escapades impersonating, seducing, and kidnapping various Nazi agents across occupied Warsaw, including impersonating the dictator himself. Um, so yeah, To Be or Not To Be is maybe the most theatrical of the set that we're talking about today, if for no other reason than it is like a play within a play from the get-go, um, and does yeah. center entirely around a set of... Um, a troop of uh, thespians a theater uh, troupe yep a theater troupe a full-blown theater troupe look at them um putting on plays he has to carry a spear oh uh, alex actually i need to i need to preface this again with some kind of external uh info tidbits so okay this came out in 1942 the war is kind of ramping up america's getting into world war ii now uh and this is going to be the most direct commentary that lubich has on World War II and Nazism. Uh, and again, it's kind of takes that, like we talked about with The Great Dictator, where you it, it plays some things off more comedically than you can ever talk about the Holocaust now. Well, unless you're Mel Brooks, I guess. Uh, but who actually remade this film directly. Okay, so that aside. Um, so did, did Mel Brooks remake this movie? Mel Brooks remade this film called To Be or Not To Be 1980-something-something. Um, So I think it was a musical, too. Um, So look into that. I have not watched it. Uh, But before this, so as Germany, uh, as the the Nazis rose to power um, and they were starting to spread their uh, anti-Semitic propaganda, There was a film made by Fritz Hippler called The Eternal Jew, which was just basically a huge smear against the the Jewish people. But they brought in actual like examples of people of Jewish uh, people who were influencing culture and using it as examples of how um, the Jews were kind of, as they said, like corrupting their society or whatever. And. Ernst Lubitsch was one of those people that they pointed to uh, as one of these cultural influencers who who was being corrupted. So he had been directly attacked by the Nazis in this in this kind of propaganda campaign. Um, 
And that film came out in 1940. Um, and To Be or Not To Be is two years later, 1942. And again, this is just kind of like setting a backdrop that, you know, Lubitsch is not a passive player in in this whole thing as it's going down. Although I don't think he was ever one of the directors that actually got involved in the war. Um, but this is kind of his slap in the face to Hitler almost directly. I don't think Hitler ever gets actually slapped in the face in this film, but there are some very like fantastical, almost like in a, uh, uh, Tarantino way with, with the way that he plays with some of the, uh, the real political elements, but also everything has a mask on. And that's one of the genius things about this film is that there's so much like, uh, masking and demasking that it's, it's really geniusly constructed. Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of layers to handle here. I mean, especially it, it just gets more complicated for like the first half of the movie, the war starts, um, the affair starts, um, you know, our, our Polish bomber guy has to go to Europe Suddenly there's a, spl- a spy pop plot line involved in the movie now, um, which is where the Anna Karenina book pops up. Um, and then suddenly there's a, a situation that's just a series of mistaken identities and assumed identities, which is so completely Shakespearean. Um, and Lubitsch does it, does it within the story, and he also does it to the audience, uh, which is the best part. Starting from the very first time that we see Hitler walk on stage and uh, or we don't know it's a stage at that point. He walks on screen and all the Nazis say, Heil Hitler, Heil Hitler. And then Hitler <laughs> goes, Heil myself. And then the fourth wall drops and we see that it's a it's this theater troupe putting on a play about Hitler, which is Ernst Lubisch putting on a film about a play about Hitler. Um, and so just they mocking him all the way Hitler through. to entrap Hitler. Right. Which is basically um, Inglorious Bastards. Yeah, no, there's I, I can see uh, 100% how this could be a huge influence on Inglorious Bastards. And there's no way that like a hardcore cinephile like Tarantino wouldn't know. Oh, yeah, absolutely. About this and be influenced by this. Um, no way, especially like the cheekiness involved in it. I feel like that's one of the things that you have to you can definitely kind of take like a humorous approach to World War Two sometimes. Um, almost in the sense that like to deal with. It's like laughing in the face of evil in a certain aspect, right? Like, yeah, it's so bad that maybe one of the things you can do is is laugh at it to show that it can't affect you as much as it would like to. And, and the other thing is, this is that weird period, like just before we actually know how bad it is. Um, and so the, there is a like a tone shift like two or three years later after the concentration camps are liberated when we're like, oh, yeah, this was way worse than we thought. Um, but this is the, the period where we know that Hitler is bad. We know that he's got to go down, but we can still kind of play him off um, as like this kind of comical Satan kind of character like they do in this film and also The Great Dictator. Which actually, speaking of The Great Dictator, that film that I mentioned, The Eternal Jew, also mentions Charlie Chaplin in it, uh, which he was not a Jew, but may have been just kind of thrown in the mix because of The Great Dictator, because they didn't like that. I wouldn't be shocked at all. (laughs) That 100% makes sense. So in this film, we do have that use of doors. So we have our main... um, 
our main couple, uh, played by Jack Benny and Carol Lombard, the Turas, and we have Maria Turas, admirer from the audience, who starts to court her backstage. Always, always steps out during the uh, yep. Hamlet soliloquy. Which is, first of all, I mean, it's hilarious, but it's the dumbest way to, <laughs> to carry on an affair. Um, it's such a good, it's such a good moment every time he leaves. The the actor who's so full of himself gets just so pissed. Yeah. And he doesn't, at first he doesn't know what's going on, and then Lubitsch does it again as like the period on the whole film. Um, but that backstage element is our closed door. So oh, yeah. using oh, oh, the sure. stage and the, the play, and then every time he walks out during the soliloquy, we know what's happening. And that's the closed door. So we know what's going on behind the curtain. Um, but it's still ambiguous enough that Lubitsch can get away with it. Yeah, yeah, right. And then every time we do go back there, it's innocent things are going on, um, mm-hmm. which implies that uninnocent things happened when we weren't looking. Until the moment when the guy shows up during the spy plot, literally, and he literally steps into his pajamas in his bed and he walks in on him. But then we whisk him in, we whisk the husband into this spy plot so quickly that he has no time to think about what's going on. And so the audience doesn't either. One of the things that makes the comedy in this, in this work so well is the character motivation, which is always something that makes uh, comedy work pretty well. Um, but the fact that the husband seems to care more about the affair than he does the, spl- the spy plot and also his reputation more than anything else. Uh, yeah, the like whenever, like, like whenever uh, the uh, the Nazis haven't heard of him as an actor, he gets so pissed and <laughs> he's it trying makes to be so a Nazi funny. and he's trying to praise himself as a Nazi to get the other ones to fall in with him. <laughs> What is his what is his character's nickname? Concentration Camp Freddy or Concentration something like that? Concentration Camp Earhart. That's oh, what they go. call me. Yeah, he just that keeps repeating hilarious. that line. Until he <laughs> meets the real Earhart, and then he pl- plays it to him. So yeah, this is... Oh man, it's so good. Um, the way that uh, our, our main actor has to step into the shoes of an SS officer in order to convince the spy... To give him the information that he would have been giving to the SS officer until his wife gets sucked in to the SS officer's room uh, because the the admirer had recommended him. Oh, gosh, the spy. Lubitsch Lubitsch plots are like a a, the whole thing is just. Yeah. But you don't get confused. It's it's kind of amazing how clear it is. As convoluted as it is. One of the things that makes it really clear is that everyone's always acting uh, in 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 their own character motivations and interest, uh, which means you don't have to follow the plot to understand what's going on. You just have to know that someone's trying to do something. And it just so happens that something new always gets in the way of the thing that they're trying to accomplish. But their character motivation uh, seems to remain the same. And in the course of the movie, because of where the situation at the end of the movie, most of the character motivations that are romantic end up being pure mulligans or uh, uh, pure MacGuffins. Yeah. Because they don't, nothing resolves in terms of the romance plot. They just keep having the affair. Um, which in, yeah, in that, a way that's not is the a point victory. Of yeah. This film, yeah, which is kind of, that's again, Lubitsch kind of, you know, playing with our expectations and and kind of, loosening <laughs> loosening that because it it is kind of 
really, this one is actually about almost the political intrigue more, uh, where a shop around the corner is is really, like I said, a rare instance of those um, infidelities and stuff taking the center stage as a dramatic element and not as a comedic element. Here, it's just kind of like laughed at and winked at, uh, and like you said, not resolved. Um, but again, it, it doesn't deprive the film of of I, like a, a somberness of, when it needs to have it. Yeah, I kind of like the 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 idea that it isn't resolved um, because it the whole the whole romance situation bookends the film in this continuation that is interrupted by the war. Um, and when yeah. when it is over, life goes on and the problem continues, which in a sort of way is a victory over the Nazis. Mm-hmm. Um, that kind of parallels real life in the early 1940s pretty well. And if you want to call the affair a reaction to uh, our main guy's like bravado, you know, then that means that, that hasn't that hasn't deflated at all either. It's it's almost been more puffed up through his yeah no, his various now disguises. Now he's a war hero. Yeah, and he's got to play like. What he got to play the SS officer, he got to play the spy, and was he the one playing Hitler? Yeah, he played Hitler. So he's he's you know high on the hog. I in thought his they got. I thought they got the. Uh, or was it the other guy? The 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 not so good actor to play Hitler. That was his big role, right? Oh, that's right. That's right. Yeah. Um. Oh man, there's just so so much that goes on there, but it's it's. Very complex plots in uh, in Lubitsch yeah. movies, and it's it's the complex plot plus the uh, screwball comedy angle, with that kind of you know European coyness that Lubitsch brings to all of his all of his films. Yeah, it makes it uh, it makes it a lot of fun, but it also makes it hard to remember. <laughs> in in specifics yeah yeah you kind of you kind of you kind of just remember laughing you remember how the, the movie made you feel but you're not going to pick it apart too much if you, if you think about it, it's a pretty good cover to to get <laughs> from a filmmaking point of view to get out of a film without anyone poking at your plot too much oh, um, yeah. especially during the code oh for sure 100 percent. yeah he, he lubich is very good at smoke screening like that which is all about the art which is what the art of storytelling is. Yep. All right. So shall we move on to our last film, which has a lot of, a lot of closed doors. Oh yeah. 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 Let's go to heaven can wait. from 1943. Heaven can wait from 1943. Henry van Cleve, a lifelong playboy and contradictorily a family man as well is dead. In pursuance of this fact, he applies to Satan himself for admittance to hell, seeing as he believes that's where he belongs. Satan, unsure Van Cleve qualifies, has him embark on a retelling of his whole life, which involves several affairs, seducing his cousin's fiancé, cheating on the same woman many times, winning her back, and eventually settling down into the role of a family man. The deterioration remains, though, whether his life be qualified as evil enough for hell or good enough for heaven. We have color. We have Technicolor. Yeah, this one's full color. It's full Technicolor. Um, it's very much in that fantasy element that really starts to pop up in the uh, in the 1940s. You see it a lot in movies like um, 
oh, uh, this kind of predates the war a little bit, but It's a Wonderful Life. Um, yeah. Has this sort of fantasy element. A lot of uh, the Archer's work, uh, Powell and Pressburger, like this Colonel film Blimp, came out which the came same out in the year same year. as Colonel Blimp. Yeah. Yep. And also, I was thinking a little more of um, uh, A Matter of Life and Death, a which matter is of life three years later. Very similar to this. Very similar. Uh, it even has the big dramatic staircase. Uh, but this one... Uh, it, it's much more dramatic in that one, probably because it's Alan Pressburger and they're very, <laughs> very grand in their imagery, which yeah. I love. I always love that. Um, but uh, Heaven Can Wait is kind of in that same vein. It's, it's this brand of escapist uh, fantasy that I think became very popular during the war years for exactly that escapist desire. Um, either the depiction of a more idealized world or going into full supernatural elements like the afterlife like this, which can be comforting in a time that is just so rife with death, um, wow. like 1943. So, you know, it, it's, uh, it's, it, it's a very much a movie of its time, but it doesn't really have much of anything to do with the war. In fact, it's every, all of its events are set prior to world war, uh, are prior to world war one. Uh, it it really sure. doesn't matter. I think I saw a quote, um, about Lubitsch films that none of them really take place in the real world. Most of them take place in Lubitsch land. And I think this yeah, is yeah, solidly do. Lubitsch land. They all take place in Lubitsch land. But I, I do think that's important in, in a sense because that, that time in the lead up to World War One is kind of like this time when everyone thought it, it, it was like the longest period of peace in Europe. It was like three or four decades of straight peace in Europe. And it was the longest time that that had happened um, in like millennia. So that it, it was kind of it, and, and back, on the back end of the very uh, optimistic 19th century. Um, it, it was kind of like this time of hope, peace and prosperity. It was kind of where a lot of the cosmopolitan ideas that Lubitsch pulls his, um, his, uh, his Lubitsch land from come from. So it kind yeah. of makes sense that it would be set in such a time uh, before worries and before strife. Although I will say this film is um, uh, allegedly set in New York and the the coming up of New York, so not actually <laughs> it, Europe. It is, <laughs> it, this, that's fair. Um, but it is, yeah, I mean, it's kind of the same idea took hold in, yeah, in right. New York as well. And it's kind of when New York went from being a city of the 19th century and uh, post-colonial industrialism into like the modern city that we think of it to, as Which is kind of today. the point. They kind of follow that track. They do. They have that exterior shot that they keep coming back to. And this this dude that we follow is just he's he's a very charming fellow. But gosh, darn, if he isn't just the most like privileged, like blessed little rich boy that you've ever darn yeah. seen, um, <laughs> who isn't mean and certainly isn't like evil. In in, the, in any sense of the word, like we see. Uh, well, this is the framing question of the whole film, yeah. right? Because he starts off, he it it kind of presents itself as like he voluntarily, after he dies, walks down to hell because he's like, I know all the things that I've done, um, which we're going to see are basically serial infidelity. Uh, and so I, I belong here. And then that is the question that this... Uh, your excellent his excellency which is our our quote-unquote satan character is trying to figure out if he actually belongs 
in the under place or if he has to take the magical elevator up to the other place. It's kind of like the ultimate struggle that Lubitsch has with the idea of infidelity. Yeah. Um, which seems to be just he, such a big theme in all of his movies. He calls this one of his favorite films uh, yep. of his. Yep, yep. Um, and now, do I, I don't think that he is ultimately a good person, um, but you're right. Like, is, is the thing he did, he, 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 are the things he does over the course of the movie um, completely evil? Uh, I do yeah. think or I damnable do th- in this case. I do think that it is a little too like. I almost feel like it's way too easy on the main yeah. character. Like he he seems contrite oh, at the end for sure, but like he definitely it definitely feels like he gets away with like everything over the course of the movie, and like his wife just completely forgives him too. It's so they not, do not really for any good reason either. Yeah, this is a really. It's a weirdly charming movie that I it's really a weird enjoy film watching, to watch. and yeah. I don't, I don't agree with like the the in conclusion at all. Yeah, or hardly any of it. But it's so much fun to watch. So, and at the it's, I, it's such I a say, weird experience. I always forget that at the end he basically gets sent to purgatory. Kind I of. I always forget that he gets sent to like kind of purgatory. It, it seems like kind that's of the heaven. It depends on what structure you put the film yeah. in. They like put him in the the guest house attic, essentially. Oh, that's right. They do. They compartmentalize. Yeah. The upper place. <laughs> that's yeah. That was a really weird like compromise. I I assuming that's like a that's like a sensor compromise. Yeah. There's but, all the so this this has all the elements of like a good Lubitsch comedy, um, and uh, every scene individually is pretty enjoyable to watch, even when you hate the character, uh, which. I definitely do on multiple occasions. Yeah. Uh, I think especially when he goes to get his wife back after his wife found out that he's cheated for like the upteenth time from Kansas. Yeah. Um, it's just, it's just like, ah, there's no reason for <laughs> this is, ah, it's frustrating. Um, and yet, it, so here's, here's the, uh, the, the thing that this film is like the, it, the entire film is not on screen. So everything that matters in the film happens by implication. Yeah, uh, it's very, it's very, it takes like the whole time scale of like a biopic, right? Where we yeah. only get like a scene or two from every, very everywhere from like five to 10 years. Yeah. And, and so throughout that we have, well, we have like the beginning where we start to figure out that he's very flirtatious boy. And then he falls head over heels with this one girl who's about to marry his cousin that he doesn't like very much because he's presented as like the the prudish nerd kid. Um, and so he whisks her away and runs off. Um, and he's also then, like the one not asshole in the family. Yeah, I mean, on paper, I mean, he's, he's like the he's best boring. one. He's just a little snobbish because he knows everyone else is terrible. Yeah, he's like, all of you guys suck. <laughs> he's got and, his and life figured out. He's really annoying, sure, but like he's not as lecherous as the rest of them. Yeah, we're uh, supposed to like, laugh at him, but he's really like the most sympathetic one, honestly. This one, this one really did not age well. No, I, I don't think so. And I think this I mean, kind of technically, it's very interesting, but it, it, yeah, it, it's almost like a Ernst Lubitsch wish fulfillment. I feel like maybe. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know that much about like Lubitsch's own history. I don't know. I, like, obviously, there's the story about how his wife cheated on him with like his one of his friends. 
but I also don't know if he ever cheated on his wife, uh, which is also super common in 1930s, 1940s Hollywood, almost expected. Um, I I feel like it's almost just the world that he lived in. And so he he kind of built this. He would be surrounded by this kind of people. Yeah, it's it's almost a fantasy of because basically it's just his wife forgiving him forever until he gets fat and unattractive. And he, she doesn't have to worry about it anymore. Uh, but up till that point, it's like she's just this long-suffering wife. And this is what Lubitsch's idea of a happy marriage is, is one where even no matter how many times the husband screws up uh, the or whichever party, I'm assuming it could go either, either way because Lubitsch does not discriminate on who commits the infidelity in his films. Um but just this this long sufferingness of staying together, no matter how much, um, essentially backstabbing it is. Although backstabbing is not the right word for the way it feels when you're watching a Lubitsch film. Yeah, it's kind of like a mild disappointment. I don't know. It's weird. It's very weird. It's it's very clear that this type of behavior was very common in the world in which Lubitsch lived. Um, and a lot of it does feel like him wrestling with being surrounded by this kind of behavior, whether or not he participated in it himself, um, right. which is kind of asking a lot to try to answer that question, um, which I, I just I just don't know. Uh, there's probably a Lubitsch historian out there who would have more information on that than us. Yeah, uh, I know he but, had several other failed relationships, but I don't know all the details on those. Yeah, but I feel like I feel like the more important thing to note is that it is so. Um, it was very common in uh, early Hollywood for this, this this sort of behavior to happen. So it makes sense in a way for him to kind of wrestle with the idea of the morality of that situation in a movie like this. Um, I almost I like I I kind of would like to see the film where because the, there's there's a more interesting angle I think that is not explored in in his son like I feel like if we're going to have this like extremely flawed character whose wife is is long suffering um like and and we do see this element where he wants to protect his son from going down the same path but that's only a means to showing him continuing his philandering like he tries to seduce his son's uh, lover oh, or whatever the, at, of the, the day. The, uh, yeah, the, the, the dancer. Um, oh, the, the Ziegfeld girl. Yeah. And then that's just they a scene a where he realizes, girl, which means she's a Ziegfeld girl. Yeah. And then that, that's the scene where he realizes that he's old and unattractive now. Uh, and so it's, it's when really it's part they just of his put journey. like, uh, like powdered sugar in the actor's hair. <laughs> yeah, it was, they, they didn't, um, they didn't make him big and fat like they did in Colonel Blimp, um, but they did. it was definitely the same guy playing like f- five decades of his own life. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. So it's oh man, it's it's such a complicated watch because it's it's not unenjoyable. Like, I don't want people to feel like you, you just No, it's a very enjoyable movie, but trying to extract the overall meaning from it. My, you just hit roadblock after roadblock when you start to yeah. think about any of it. Yeah, it might not be the best movie to try to um, approach Lubin. Yeah, yeah, no, this this isn't the best one to try to extract like a moral meaning from because I don't think you're gonna get a good answer. I think it's I think it's a very uh, a very specific 
uh, commentary on a very specific time and place. Uh, I don't think it ends up being too universal uh, mm-hmm. because not not in the sense that it's not an issue that it, it can be uh, can be universal. I mean, adultery happens in every time and location, uh, but. You know the the attitude taken towards it in the film is so blasé that yeah. it inherently makes it um, dated to a certain period in time. So, Alex, there there's another film that this one reminded me of, and there's maybe a direct uh, connection or reference back to this film in Brief Encounter. Did you did you think about Brief, Brief Encounter, Encounter at all? Do you remember Dave, one of David I, Lean's early I films? I really like Brief Encounter. It's it's really good. Um, but I didn't think about it while watching this movie. What what made you think about Brief Encounter? So Brief Encounter, first of all, is very Lubitschian. It, uh, it is from 1945, so it's actually two years after this. So I'm almost assuming that Lean was influenced by Lubitsch and may have taken aspects of that. But... The um, so the premise of brief encounter, which we didn't cover on our on our David Lean podcast, but it is very uh, kind of milestone film in Lean's career, is about a wife who has a very kind of happy marriage, but also kind of you know in her eyes very boring, very routine. Wrote uh, and one day on a train station, she meets this guy, and they start up a normal conversation, which then turns into they have a an, brief encounter. Yes, they have a brief encounter. Uh, which turns into an affair. Um, dun, dun, dun. And there's a shot that bookends that film where in the very first shot, when we're seeing her boring marriage, uh, she and her husband are sitting in their living room. They have a fire going. He's reading the newspaper. She's doing something else. Um, and she starts to realize how boring her life is. And then at the end of the film, we come back to that after she's had this thing that her husband has no idea about. Um, and she kind of has to settle her mind with the life that she has. And there's kind of that, that same shot almost in one of the scenes with, uh, Van Cleve, our main character here and his wife while they're sitting around after he's realized that he's old and fat. And then this is kind of where she tells him that she knows all the things that he's been doing that he thought he was being so sly about, um, so I thought that, that was really interesting. And the other interesting element to that is that Brief Encounter was a huge influence on a film called The Apartment. Because in Brief Encounter, they basically use a friend's apartment as their rendezvous spot uh, in a really weird way that um, then Billy Wilder takes. And he turns into a whole film about this guy whose apartment is being used for this affair. Uh, and so there's this kind of full circle element to this and all those stories kind of have this very Lubitschian uh, aspect of, of infidelity and um, brief encounter is not comedic. Uh, I'm not sure if the apartment is comedic or not. I still haven't got around to that one. Oh, the apartment. Oh, the apartment's amazing. Yeah. The uh, apartment is influenced by brief encounter. The apartment is hundred percent uh, influenced by brief encounter and everything Lubitsch ever did is yeah. uh, Billy Wilder, right? Man, yeah. that was one of those movies that I watched as like a teenager when I just like printed out uh, the AFI list of like 100 movies you should watch. And I went to Family Video, which is no longer open, but it's the rental store that used to be by our neighborhood <laughs> as, as kids. Um, 
and found I just looked for movies on the list and the apartment was one of the first movies I found and I just got it and plugged it in and watched it and I was like this is amazing I didn't know movies could be this funny this is great um and yeah it stuck with me ever since the apartment's amazing do recommend it go watch it (laughs) it it very much follows up on a lot of this sort of uh thing there's a lot of times where the infidelity feels almost justified in a certain sense in these movies um not to say that it is inherently so but it is motivated correctly um usually not in heaven can wait (laughs) Not in heaven can wait. This guy just does it because he can. Uh, it seems yeah. to be where he uh, derives his sense of self and his sense of self-worth as seen by like how he suddenly lo- loses self-worth in uh, when he starts to go gray. And, and then I he's guess almost rewarded for that. Gains a couple end. pounds. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, his basically. freaking death is is like the weirdest one because he's literally on his deathbed and he's like, no, this nurse is too ugly. And then she gets switched out for the night nurse who matches his exact fantasy of basically being carried over the river Styx. Uh, and she's like, she put the thermometer in and my temperature went up and up and up. And then I died. I'm like, oh my gosh, this guy needs to calm down. Yeah, no, that was a weird like verbal description that he gave. Uh, it was it was really weird when Luke Bish... <laughs> maybe it's just because it's a uh, Lubitsch movie but when he said she put the thermometer in I went what Um, like where'd the thermometer go Uh, but yeah some of his lines are are more subtle than others it's very it's very uh, it's it's weird it's odd but it matched the character like it's 100% what this guy would say yeah Uh, like 110% just a weird character that I wouldn't want yeah. to hang out with them. Being being completely lecherous yeah. his entire life. It's also one know. of these things where, see... like, I assume that she, you know, if if the guy that you're marrying has just stolen you from your wedding after he met you for like one instant in a bookstore, like, and that was guy's really probably not going to be the most store. faithful guy, uh, yeah. in marriage. Really, like, like his entire like flirting technique is so creepy. I know yeah. it's just like dated really but it's also creepy all right yeah that's heaven can wait um anything else on heaven can wait alex uh no heaven can wait can wait (laughs) all right so let's move on to overall notes and alex i have a question for you what is the lubich touch describe it for me (sighs) it's hard because it's uh when we enter into the realm of really good storytelling we're entering into the realm of stuff that cannot be defined so much as experience um, which is, sounds weird to say experience the Lubitsch touch, but it is something that Lubitsch would say in one of his movies. Um, but it's a combination of all those signatures, right? It's stuff like the closed door. Um, it, it's stuff like the well-timed uh, theatrical visual comedy. Um, it's stuff like the social commentary. It's stuff like the really exaggerated, just hyper-realistic uh, uh, characters um, who are just completely fantastical uh, yeah. that that all kind of meld together. It is, in essence, it is kind of one of the early concepts of auteurship that we saw presented. And it, it, it does predate uh, the concept of auteurship that is put forth by uh, the folks in Cashier du Cinema 
And well, yeah. Uh, and the interesting is the interesting thing is that he, he was coming up at the same time, and those same writers like wrote a lot of articles about him. They praised him. It's just for some him. reason, somewhere along the line, he he stopped being talked about I as much he, as Hitchcock I, or Capra or. I think a Lee. lot of it has to do with the fact that he kind of died early. Um, yeah. I think that's a big part of it. I think another big part of it is that when he died meant that he didn't have a lot of color canon uh, in his in his uh, ouvre, so to speak. Like uh, Hitchcock has a lot of color canon. And I almost guarantee that if you uh, catch a Hitchcock movie on TV or presented to you by somebody else for the first time outside of like a cinephile setting, it's probably going to be one of the color ones. Um, you're not going to see like 30, Capra doesn't have a lot of the first color. Um, he doesn't, but even any Capra color, uh, Capra isn't as well known as someone like Hitchcock either. Uh, that's true. You know, I would say Capra's probably better known than Lubitsch, just maybe. And that's probably to do with the syndication of something like, uh, it's a wonderful life. Or, yeah. As it uh, became a yearly, I mean, it, it's a wonderful it, life. It's kind a, of got it's a lucky Christmas, it's a Christmas it's movie. A, yeah, yeah, it's a tradition. And yeah. although and Shop Around the Corner is, it's not as like, as like wrapped around the yeah. idea of Christmas. And I think a lot of that as well has to do with the fact that Lubitsch's movies were all made um, before the real like post-war um, nihilism set in. Uh, so all of his movies are in this Lubitsch land. Uh, which is like this uh, cosmopolitan, semi-utopian uh, version of the world where everyone travels, everyone's from a different country, and they all get along and can speak English. Um, and so, you know, his his movies didn't really fit a post-World War II world. And they were still good, but they weren't going to get as much replay value in that period of time. And the 40s, 50s, uh, 60s, and into the 70s, uh, the the period, or really the 50s, 60s, and 70s, I should say, is the period where the next set of filmmakers were growing up and studying movies. Yeah. Um, so Lubitsch was probably somebody who they, they got to when they got to film school, some of the first film schools, and he might have been shown there. Um, but otherwise, they would have maybe had to catch some movies. They weren't catching movies on TV until like the late 50s. And even yeah. then, you know, Lubitsch movies weren't particularly fantastic for syndication. Uh, and I, I will say, too, that Lubitsch dying so young, also, like, even though Capra didn't make films quite as, as uh, you know, that much longer than Lubitsch did, he was still around, and he was able to talk about his films and he talk still about the current state of film. Yeah. He made his, he, he, he wrote his autobiography. He younger generation yeah. when the younger generation became interested in film as, like, a historical right. art, right? So right. Lubitsch just wasn't around for that, and that's that's some of the, some one of the things that happened to a lot of those super early filmmakers too. Uh, I think one of the weird one of the things that if where it feels like Lubitsch should be more popular than he is is that he died before a lot of those other his other contemporaries. So like where your Wilders and your Weilers and your Hitchcocks and your Capras got interviewed, Even Griffith, yeah, yeah, got got interviewed by like Bogdanovich. Uh, and other folks who are interested in them over and over, Lubitsch wasn't around. Um, and his films belong to a, a past time. It's not that the quality of the art went away, but the relevance of the art faded as well. And it's one of the weird things that we we exist in, the, that we have in the world today, 
where all art has suddenly become contemporary with, through the power of the internet. Like any, you can access nearly anything almost immediately. But that wasn't true up until like maybe 10 or 15 years ago. So, um, you know, it's not actually all that surprising that someone like Lubitsch isn't as popular as he could have been. Now, is it possible in the future that he, he could be more popular? Sure. Oh, for sure. It depends on uh, who gets taught more in, in schools yeah. um, and what gets circulated on the, uh, the platforms that people follow. You know, it's almost Netflix- one of the ones that you, you almost work backwards to. You start with with you know the Hitchcocks and the Billy Wilders, and then you're like, well, who did they like? And you start reading their interviews, and they're talking about this Lubitsch guy. And then you're like, oh, I think I saw a shop around the corner one time at my grandma's house or whatever. And then you kind of work your way back into it. Yeah, and and it definitely could it definitely could take off again. But yeah, it's he's definitely like a second, uh, a further reading type of filmmaker that you get to, even though he is so fundamentally influential to everyone else. And in that that contrast, it's there's a lot of interesting stuff to talk about when it comes to both. Uh, film academia and the history of film academia which is like a double meta layer so have yeah. fun with that yeah uh and and regarding the the phrase the lubitsch touch uh which is kind of traced back to some article that was written about him uh but basically became ubiquitous even during lubitsch's career uh someone asked him about it one time and they said what what do you think it means and he said uh I would like to know myself. You can find out. If you find out, tell me. Uh, I can't give you a definite answer because fortunately I'm not conscious of it. If I ever become conscious of it, heaven prevent, I might lose it. So it's one of these things that just like it was inherent in the way that he worked and he didn't really like to put a label on it. Um, but there's also there was also another quote by someone who said uh, that to some extent the Lubitsch, like using the Lubitsch touch as like a term is almost not very helpful because if you don't know who Lubitsch is, then it, the term doesn't help you. And if you do know who Lubitsch is, you already know what it is, you know? So yeah, like there's, yeah. there's, it's not very instructive. It's a self, it's itself. a self defining term. The definition yeah. of the term is the, it, the, the term you is have in the to definition see it of the to term. Know what it is. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And it is, it is essentially an expression of like individual style that just becomes a thing. And some people just jive with their own style better than others. Um, I think that's an important part of becoming an artist. Uh, your, your own style just kind of exists on its own and it grows out of who you are as a person and the media that you consume. Um, mm-hmm. And the more that you create, the more it becomes well-defined. Um, and it, it relies a lot on just you doing things that you enjoy in, in story making um, and not worrying too much about what a story is supposed to be or measuring up to some other standard, uh, but rather just creating art that you enjoy and that functions on its own in the yeah. way that you want it to function. Um, you know, it, it's really, I think it really is a good sign of somebody who is both like in love with his art and genuinely has a good time making it. I think that's when you see people who have a really well-defined style. Um, I think that's when you see like a Hitchcock or a Tarantino Mm -hmm. um, is people who are truly in love with the thing that they do and just have a whole heck of a lot of fun doing it. Yeah. Uh, And and let's talk about one of the main things that we have been talking about that relates to that style, which is 
um, the closed door, and also a term that I'll throw in here uh, that we talked about on our Ozu episode, which is ellipsis. Um, and that like Lubitsch- literally every other episode since then. <laughs> yeah, right. We've talked about it a lot, uh, or, or the but idea of blank space or what you leave out. Yeah, and it's really useful. And I will say um, there, there's another great uh, Billy Wilder quote um, about Lubitsch's closed doors where he says, Lubitsch can do more with a closed door than most directors can do with an open fly. Basically saying that Lubitsch's closed doors are like so much more insinuative uh, and exciting than basically the modern. I mean, now and we've talked about this before, too, is like the the Hayes Code, as restrictive as it was, promoted a lot more creativity. And the dropping of the of the code means that when you can show everything, you realize that it's not that exciting. It's not that great. You know, yeah, you don't the, you don't create the right amount of draw attention in the audience yeah. when you can show everything. A lot of the allure is in like almost seeing, uh, or, seeing or something. assume like yeah, making your own or assumptions. Assumption. Yeah, yeah, like like if you if you're not making the audience engage with what's going on on screen, essentially just showing everything, then you're not really creating a good amount of engagement with the audience. Whereas if you actually, you know, work to create the uh, desire to see something or the interest or the insinuation of seeing something, then you're probably uh, going to end up with a much, much more interested and therefore much more titillated audience. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and again, one like I'm thinking back to um, that uncertain feeling again, the very end of the film when our distraught musician who has come in and and basically wrecked the the marriage of our main couple and then through series of events they get back together and they literally the musician comes back into his own apartment and starts playing the piano the husband walks out of the guy's bedroom in his pajamas and says hey can you keep it down and walks back in that's all we see is just a guy in another guy's apartment in his pajamas but we know what's going on and oh yeah once that door closes the film ends and like we know everything that's going on we know um, the walls of Jericho have fallen. <laughs> yeah, but it's 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 still letting us fill in those blanks. And again, that's the that's where the ellipsis comes in, the way that Ozu would use um, in a very much more dramatic, less romantic uh, terms. But it's giving us holes to engage the audience to basically. Um, there's other quotes of Lubitsch saying that, like, or who was that? But basically creating an interactive cinema more or less in a way that the audience is filling in the gaps that you're presenting around a framework of a story. So, you know, heaven can wait could on its very, very surface be read as a guy who, uh, showed a beetle to a girl one day when he was a little kid and then grew up, stole his cousin's bride and stayed married to her for the rest of his life. But if you're actually reading between the lines, there's so much more to that film. You could you could oh, yeah. read it as like a complete straight story of, you know, solid rock family. Uh, yeah. But it's definitely not that. Actually having everything spelled out to you as an audience is really not that fun. Uh, yeah. It's not as fun as it's you insulting. think it would be. Yeah. You, you, want, you want to be engaged, you know. Lubitsch, Lubitsch cites, um, uh, you know... <laughs> again, tracing back influences, Lubitsch was highly influenced as everyone was uh, by Chaplin and especially Lubitsch as a comedian, uh, as a comedic actor and comedic director. 
Um, and Chaplin made a film called um, A Woman in Paris or A Woman of Paris. Yep, yep. Uh, A Woman in Paris. And it was like one of his first dramas and everyone was like, oh my God, why did he make a drama? (laughs) But it was hugely influential in a way that um, Lubitsch saw it as not pandering to the audience, not spelling things out and giving the audience their respect in terms of understanding the story in the way that it's presented. You want to, you want to get out with using as few title cards as you possibly can. Which which was famous for. That that is a, that is a ideal that should be held up even when you're making a, um, even when you're making a sound movie, sound color, modern movie, you should get out with using as few title cards as possible. I don't mean literal title cards. Yeah. Don't explain things. So apparently, and just and like I'm not going to explain that metaphor. <laughs> as an example, uh, again, I'm going to keep going back to that uncertain feeling because I feel like it, it plays off of a lot of the really fundamental things that we've been talking about with Lubitsch. But there's an instance in that uncertain feeling where the husband and wife are trying to get a divorce, but at that time you had to have like some kind of like hard evidence yeah, to, to present causality. towards the court. Yeah, to, yeah, yeah, there was there was no there wasn't a no fault divorce yet. That so, was in the '70s, I think. Yeah. Um, so basically they have to come up with a situation where the lawyer's secretary sees him slap his wife. Um, and But they're like brainstorming ways to come up with causality, to come up with their case. Um, and apparently in the silent film version, uh, which I cannot remember the name to, um, they did that entire scene through pantomime. And apparently it was a genius use of, of pantomime coming up with all these different ways and the lawyers just like moving all over the room, uh, trying to think of things. No, no title cards whatsoever. Uh, and then I think he actually doesn't go through with hitting her in the silent version. And then in this one, they kind of put a twist on it where he does, but he has to like get himself really drunk to be able to do it. Uh, which is what starts to endear her back to him, uh, in a really ironic twist. But you know, there's, it's just that, that difference of thinking of things, um, and uh, almost in the way that that Hitchcock kind of almost resented sound. He he would talk about sound films as just people, uh, movies of people standing around talking. Um, but they were that for a long time. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it takes a while. Every time you add something new to the layer, it takes a while to really use it effectively in an artistic manner, artistic mm-hmm. storytelling manner. Um, which is just so much implying, really. But it's these directors yeah, yeah. that that understood silent film and the visual aspect of filmmaking that went on to make these great films because they were always driven by what is on screen, not yeah. what is being said. Sometimes what is on screen subverts what is being said. Uh, yeah. And that, that and is part of the Lubitsch touch. Yeah, I mean, even just going back to like the, the first ever storytellers around a campfire, the, the goal of storytelling is to get the audience's imagination running. And you used to do that all with words around a campfire. Um, but now you, you would think a in, a, in a world... It, yeah, 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 right? Um, and a lot of O's. A lot of, <laughs> a lot of O's. Oh, great ocean. Why? Um, Odysseus. Yes. Yeah, yeah exactly. Um, but so... And you would think that in the modern era era where we have all these visuals that it wouldn't be as hard to get the, um, uh, the audience's imagination running, but it, it, it still takes just as much work, if not more 
to get their imagination running to start building a world or a feeling or whatever you want them to be building around the thing that you present them. And they can't do that if you're filling in all the, the, the lines for them. Yeah. All right, Jonathan. Well, uh, what are we going to be talking about next time on the podcast? It's been a while, Alex, since we talked about animation, but we're getting back into it. Uh, and we That's are right. looking at uh, the Irish uh, animation studio Cartoon Saloon. And which One of, of my their favorites. films are we talking about? Man, they do such good work. Um, we're going to be talking about uh, four of their movies, probably their four most popular. I think they're four only features, although they do have plenty of shorts out there. Um, and this includes both their Irish folklore trilogy and the one non-Irish movie they've made. Um, although I guess they're all Irish because they're made in Ireland. Uh, <laughs> the first is The Secret of Kells, which is from 2009, which details the story of uh, the Irish monks who kept classic literature intact um, through the Dark Ages, which is uh, one of the only reasons that we have texts from older than like Shakespeare is because the monks wrote it down in Ireland. Um, all of like the Roman text and Greek texts were saved through that mode. Um, then we have uh, Song of the Sea from 2014, which is uh, about a Irish lad whose younger uh, sister turns out to be a seal woman, uh, which is a common theme in Celtic folklore. Um, I remember then, when I found that out. It was a rough day. Ooh, man. Uh, and you have two seal sisters. That's crazy. <laughs> um, and then the breadwinners from 2017, uh, which is about a, a young lady trying to survive uh, and keep her family alive in uh, a Taliban occupied Afghanistan. Uh, and it is it's way darker than any of these other movies. By okay, like Alex, a long but this shot. Is, it's a it's a turn. Here's the bar, though. Is it darker than Grave of the Fireflies? Uh, it's pretty close. Dang, that's going to be rough. Uh, and Grave of Fireflies is real dark. Um, I, I don't think it ends as sadly as Grave of the Fireflies, but there is a lot of death um, and a lot of just hate. There's a lot of very hateful, scared people on screen. Although mm -hmm. I will say they do a good job of showing how much that hate comes from a sense of fear and a warped, controlled worldview. Um, I don't mm. think no no one comes across as very mindless in Breadwinners, which I, I must say is quite the achievement. Um, it's been a minute since I've seen it. I saw it when it came out, so maybe that it doesn't hold up as, as much as I think it does. Uh, but I believe it's really good, if I recall correctly. And the latest is Wolfwalkers from 2020, which is one of my favorite movies from 2020. Wolfwalkers should win. Best animated feature at this year's Oscars. Hot takes it's right not, here. Hot takes. It's people. not going to because they're going to give it to Pixar again because they always give it to Pixar. Um, but uh, is Soul their their qualifying one this year? They have they have two Pixar movies. It's Soul and one other one. I don't remember what the other one is. Oh, it's it's um it's a it's a uh, a venture movie in in fantasy suburbia. Onward. Oh, onward. Yeah, oh Onward and, and Soul got a nomination. Wolfwalkers really should win, um, but I don't trust the Oscars, nor do I put a lot of stock in who they nominate or who they select to win. But Wolfwalkers was, is just a really good movie and should be watched. It It's great. Um, even my dog likes it, and she doesn't normally pay attention to movies, probably because it has a lot of wolf howling in it. Um, <laughs> 
but yeah, it's really, really good. Um, yeah. So what was our latest uh, bonus podcast about, Jonathan? Yeah, so we have a Patreon. If you would like to go over there and support us, uh, you can join our online community. Join us for uh, movie nights every Thursday. Uh, we pick movies that usually relate to whatever we're studying for that month. Um, and also, you can subscribe to our bonus podcast and get a little bit extra content. And our latest one, which you can listen to right now, relates to our previous main show topic, which was uh, very low budget, very fun to watch bad movies. Uh, and so we watched Kung Fury, which is available on YouTube. And, uh, it is, it is a wild ride of people and, uh, after effects and green screens. Um, oh, that's a thing. <laughs> so if you want to hear us talk about that, you can join us on the discord. Oh wait, on the Patreon. Anyone can join us on the discord. Yeah. And they discord's should. open. Come join us on the discord. Well, that's about all the time we have for this episode. If you have movie suggestions for us or want to reach out, I can be found on Twitter at at JS Satchel. And I'm at Alex Garinger. And I'm at the Blue Jay, 1994. And to find links to things that we talked about today, you can view them on the blog at thefilmlinks.com. If you like the show, let us know. Leave us a review on iTunes so other people know what we're all about. We definitely appreciate it. Talk to you next time. All right, see ya. of this weird cosmopolitan world where everyone speaks English. And, oh, hi, Sooks. Did you hear her just now? No. Okay. Well, then maybe it's not on the, the mic. We'll see. If you hear a, then that was my dog. Um,